Hi, this is Yarrow, host of the Vested Capital Podcast. The podcast you're listening to right now, though, is actually the mastermind podcast I put on with three of my closest friends, Gideon, Nick, and Manny, all guys who are doing interesting things with their own startups, with their own investment in things like property and cryptocurrencies and other forms of making money. We do this show roughly once a month. This is actually the second episode we've done so far. I recommend you go back and look for the first episode of what I called the the mastermind. I, I think we're going to stick with that name for now. The Vested Capital Show normally features a guest where I interview them. They're a startup founder or someone who's maybe a venture capitalist or a property investor. But for this show, it's really a four-way conversation between my friends where we, we go over what we've been working on for the last number of weeks since we last did the show. Then we answer questions that you might send in. And by the way, if you do have a question for us, anything around business or investment, you can always email that in yarrow at yarrow.blog. That's Y-A-R-O. Or you can just tweet me. I'm Yarrow Stark on Twitter. Send me a message on Instagram, all the social places. Just let me know you've got a question for us to answer on the uh, Vested Capital Mastermind show. And we'll answer it. So we do answer a question from Albert, our first ever email question in this episode today. We also talk a little bit about what we worked on with our own projects. And we discuss some other things around investing, property, pretty much the usual topics for vested capital in general anyway. But since this is four of us, it's more of a, a conversation rather than a background story. If you didn't listen to the first episode, that is your chance to learn more about Manny, Gideon, and Nick. So we do not introduce those guys again, since I don't want to be repeating their stories over and over again every time we do the show. So if you're not familiar with my friends, go find the Mastermind episode one. No matter what, though, I think you'll enjoy this because uh, all three of these guys have unique experiences decades worth of business and investing experience and also working for startups as well. So we have lots of experience to draw on and different perspectives on how we go about things, which I think is the best thing about this show is we do have the unique view from people who've started a business, but also worked for uh, another startup and also, you know, investing in, in very different ways with very different risk profiles. I do angel investing. The other guys don't. Nick does more property. The other guys are more focused on their businesses. So anyway, that's enough about the show. You can uh, hear our conversation in just a moment. Once again, though, before I do begin the main podcast, I'd like to introduce you, if it's the first time you've heard about it, to the sponsor of our show, InboxDone.com which is my company. So we provide uh, basically a virtual assistant who focuses on email in particular. That's our specialty. That's what we train and hire for. We're working for all kinds of business owners at the moment, anything from real estate to accountants to candy store owners, venture capitalists, online coaches, doctors, lawyers, pretty much anyone who has too much email can benefit from uh, what we offer, which is a specially trained person who will step in and manage, clean up, and reply to all your messages, including your email, your customer support messages, whether that's in email or a help desk system. We also deal with anything in your social media inboxes. So if you're drowning in LinkedIn messages, or maybe you're an influencer and you get too many Instagram messages, we can step in and handle that for you. We also do admin tasks that extend beyond the inbox. So scheduling your calendar, entering data into software, could be task management software, CRM software, basically anything you think an executive virtual assistant can do, we do. 
but we start with email and that's where we really want to break you free give you time, simplify your life so you can get back to focusing on whatever matters most to you. If that sounds like it's something you need in your life, in your business, inboxdone.com is the place to go. Book a discovery call and you get to speak to me. I am the person who does the discovery calls for the company right now. So we can talk about whatever your needs are around email and virtual assistance and we can uh, potentially assign one, two or three to help you. Okay, that's enough from me. I'm going to begin the episode now with my mastermind, Gideon, Nick, and Manny. All right. <laughs> I'm here with the guys again. Gideon, Nick, Manny, thanks for joining me one more time. We're doing round two of our mastermind call. Since no one suggested a name and I haven't come up with one myself, we're just going to continue to call this the Vested Capital Mastermind. I love that word. So I think that works for me. So last time we did this, I introduced these three guys. I'm not going to introduce them again. Well, they are all doing things around business, investing, living lives. As Nick says, he's the career job guy. The other two have their own businesses. So I thought a couple of things to cover. First of all, we do have a question that came in from our very first episode from a listener, which I'll read out in a second from Albert and love to get the opinion in all three guys on that one. But I thought before we do that, let's just do a quick catch up. It's been, I think, about six weeks since we did the first call, guys. So what has happened in the last six weeks? And you can take that question however you like. Gideon, you're first in my screen, so you can answer first. Well, it's been a good six weeks. We're just entering into a new growth phase for Splash Show, which is pretty interesting. It's a different hat for me to wear. It's not a hat that I that sits very comfortable for me personally, but it's one that I nonetheless sometimes have to wear. Although we're just in the process of engaging some growth experts to join us on the team. So that's going to be really interesting. But in the meantime, I've just been really shifting gears from a mainly creation mode to more of a leverage mode. So that's been me for the last six weeks. What does that mean, Gideon? Well, for me, I think it comes down to three things in business that you need for success. You need energy, which you can get from many different sources. And it's not just physical energy, there's money energy, for example, as well. There's people energy, there's lots of different energy. Essentially, energy is the raw materials that you put into your system, right, to make it work. Then the system consists of two more components. One is value creation, and the second part is leveraging of that value. So it's energy, use the energy to create value, and then once you've got value, you, you leverage that value. And so for me, the, the value creation is where I shine. I love creating things, and that's whether it's product creation or creating systems or figuring out what it is that customers or clients want. That's all part of the value creation, right? And then the leverage is, is really the, the marketing functions historically in, in the business setting. So that's really it. Yeah. So, so from that, you know, when you, when you get it all right, when you get all the parts aligned, you get you get success. Well, that's that's a theory anyway. Mm-hmm. Very, very high level. All right. Moving yeah. on, Nick, what have you been up to for six weeks? It's so much easier to get to answer this question second because Gideon's just like sparked off so many good ideas. <laughs> I've been doing three things. I've been training for a marathon like a crazy person. And then unfortunately, I got injured two weeks ago, which is now really frustrating me because the marathon is coming up fast at the end of August. So I've got now this closing window of chasing recovery and trying to get back into things without doing more damage and and wanting to make sure that come race day, I am fit as a fiddle. So they say. What, What did you do, Nick? What part of you is damaged? I went for a run and without any warning, my calf muscle just decided it was not going to keep going that day. So, I had to call that one off and went to the orthopedic sort of masseuse the next day who poked and prodded and I stuck it in a bucket of ice for a week and have slowly been 
re-engaging that muscle. But it's nothing serious, but it's one of those things that you just, it takes time to recover. And when you've got that date looming, and I was really pushing to perform pretty well for that. I've been training hard for now the last uh, four or five months. And uh, yeah, to get an injury six weeks before race day is super frustrating. Yeah, brutal. I've seen a few uh, Olympians pull up with that similar kind of injury right while they're performing. And that, that must be heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, I was set to catch the plane to Tokyo and it just like, it all fell apart at the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you obviously cut your hair for that aerodynamic speed assist, right? That, that's why the haircut changed for those of you watching on the video. I guess we haven't seen each other like like face to face for a while then, but no, it was just the back of my head. There's nothing there these days. And <laughs> I, I made an us, agreement. except for Manny are going in that direction. So... <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> when I married my wife, it's like, hey, just a heads up, I'm probably going to go bald one day. She's like, oh, that's fine. It's like, well, sooner or later, you're going to need to tell me, it's like, you need to shave it back because otherwise it just looks really bizarre when you've got sort of long hair in front and there's this just miserable big board patch at the back. So, no one sees it. That's what I tell I mean, myself. no one sees it on Zoom. No one sees it on, on video conferencing. It's wonderful. Yeah. But beyond that, I've been traveling again. So, right now I'm in Northern Idaho. And I think actually sort of one of the benefits that I see of like this next wave of COVID and, and recovery there is that this hybrid working style is now being rolled out. So I have now sort of a lot of flexibility potentially in terms of where I do my work from and how I do my work. So we're beginning to explore what that might create for us. And beyond that, I've been busy with a little property investment that just closed last week. So uh, I now have a threeplex that we're trying to, to sort out and get moving on in terms of nice. filling an empty apartment, which hasn't had a tenant for a while and addressing some deferred maintenance that the previous owners didn't obviously want to deal with. So, chipping away at that. That's been my last okay. six weeks well, or so. Definitely want to talk to you about that in a moment, but let's hear from Manny first. Manny, how's your six weeks? Oh, yeah. I've just been hustling on focus blocks and trying to grow that. From so India? Our, our 200 members. Well, from everywhere in the world, I guess, wherever I have to go. Well, I had to come to India 10 days ago to take care of my mom. So that's that. But yeah, even when I'm in India, I'm working on that thing. And yeah, it's been six weeks of hustle. We're 200 members, learning a lot about onboarding, churn, getting people to use the product quickly enough before they forget about it. Our biggest problem right now is people don't even use it before they cancel it, right? Like people don't even get around to using it before they just said, oh, I didn't use it, so please cancel. And we're like, oh, my God. But when we get people to use it, they're lifers. They're like, oh, my God, this is the best thing ever. They'll sign up and they'll be like lifetime subscribers. So it's like a dichotomy of two sides. One is like as soon as we get people to use it, it's great. But if I can't get them to use it, then we lost them. So mm -hmm. that's what mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out right now. And also, of course, paid acquisition. That's a big part of the puzzle for me. <laughs> like just increasing or ad spend on Facebook, acquiring customers, all that stuff, which is quite an ordeal as always. So Yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm going to ignore your finger for a second, Gideon. I know you want to say something about that. <laughs> I just sure. was laughing when you said that, Manny. It's almost like you need focus blocks to get people to use focus blocks. But I do wonder, you know, you've got a, two types of people there. I wonder if the people who are never trying it are ultimately just the wrong target market or is it a case of something you do with the onboarding that actually gets them to take that first step and thus become users? But it's a, it's a tough question to answer. Yeah, that's a tough one. And sometimes I feel like we get people because it's a great deal 
And they are like, oh, okay, great deal. $7 trial for the first month. I'll do it just because. But then they don't even get around to using it. But the people who we get are the real users. They are the ones who are like, oh, my God, I love it. This is life-changing. I'm going to share it with my friends. So it's a very interesting situation. Like onboarding, we've improved a lot. Because if you really wanted to use it, like as soon as you press your credit card button to buy, the next page itself is a place where you can go and schedule your focus blocks and start using it right away, not even like later. So we're trying to improve that part. But yeah, I don't know. I'm still playing around with that side of things. Uh, Gideon, I feel like you want to say something. So you want to butt in? Yeah, I was trying to figure out where I read about this, whether it was in growth hacking or hooked, where he talked about exactly that, you know, because we had the same sort of, we had the same issue and still still do, but we've improved it with getting people to actually try a product before they cancel, right? Because once, once you get them to try it, they're much more likely to actually stay, especially if it's, if it's a targeted sort of audience. And I think it was in Growth Hacking, he talks about moving the point at which your client or your, your user gets the aha moment of using or potentially using your product. So in our case, previous to about a month ago, we required people to give us the credit card details to go on a free trial. And so it was quite a big barrier before people could try it and get the aha moment. So then we changed that about a month or two ago to no credit card option, but you still have to give your uh, name and email address. So there's still a barrier, but now it's much less. So more people are now getting in and so more people are getting to the aha moment going, oh, now I see how it works and now I see the benefits. So the idea is that they, you know, once they get the aha moment for your, your product and what it is and how it can make their life better, then you know they're going to be much more likely to keep on using it. But yeah, bringing that forward, that's the whole idea. So I don't know how, if there's a way that you can do that. I haven't looked at your process, but that might be an idea in there for you. You're absolutely right. This is so funny because only last night I instituted this new change because now I am running a, like a major split test going on where one half of the traffic is being sent to a page where it's a seven-day trial, but you have to put in your credit card. Another is a totally, completely free trial, no credit card required. It says on the page, no credit card required. And I'm going to see what happens. So this is like mm. over a period of a month, I will be able to gather some stats as to what happens in this scenario. But exactly what you said was on my mind. I was like, yeah, I need to figure mm. out a way to get people to use it. That's all I need. Because if I can get someone to use it, they almost like... I have users who tried it and used it in India. And now the problem is they can't pay for some reason. Their credit cards don't work with our payment system, blah, blah, with ThriveCard. And they literally like keep hustling me. They're like, hey, what can I do? Can you please do this? Can you give me your bank account <laughs> details to, you know, so I can send you the payment and this and that. So we get all sorts of things like that. But at the same time, I have the other side, which is like can't get them to use it. So yeah, I feel like if I can just get them to use it for free, that's enough of a victory for us. Because once you get them to use it for free, the cool thing is, yeah, you can try it for free. Nobody can go and create it by themselves. Yeah, of course they can. But like to build a 24-7 operation for this, that's going to take them forever to do that. So if they get hooked, they have to come to us. It's funny. I've just listened to a podcast, Manny, that was the founder of FitBod. It's an app for weight training exercises. They have about 230,000 plus users and the founder was saying they went through four iterations of their onboarding process. They just constantly change it. And one thing I thought really stood out was a big part of that was actually the founders getting on phone calls with the users, like both ends, the people who were lifetime love it and the people who churn. They just want to hear everything they could from users directly as possible. But 
I can see a lot of head nodding there from Manny. So excited to do something like that. But let's let's move on because I do feel like we got a lot to cover still. I want to make sure we answer Albert's question since you know, he was he or she. I'm pretty sure it's a he, but you never know. Was gracious enough to be our first ever email sender innerer. Not sure what to call that. And I'll just share my screen for those who get to watch this on videos, so you'll be able to read along with me. So it's a bit of a long one, so please bear with me, everyone listening in. I'm just going to read out most of it. So Albert asks, okay, on a future episode, I'd appreciate if you and your group could discuss some ideas or actionable steps people like me can take to start their entrepreneurial journey. I currently have a full-time job and plan to transition into a life when I can be a full-time business or business's owner and quit working for my current company. Are there any great ways for me to start to learn how to become an entrepreneur? Is it possible to find a reliable person or group of people with ideas and invest money to buy into a new small business, which would allow me to learn the process from others? Are there small business ideas I could start from $5,000 to $10,000 on my own, which would allow me to learn how to run a small business on my own, but also not have a life-changing amount of money at risk if it fails? So I'm going to maybe stop there and and move straight on because there's three or four questions right within that. Basically, Albert's asking new entrepreneur, what do you advise him or her to do? And I'm going to throw it to Nick because obviously, Nick, you've been in the situation with a full-time job first. Well, I just read the rest of the question in case I miss anything. So go ahead, Nick. I'm going to probably take a pretty contrarian view from the rest of these three guys but I think the job you have right now is a really big asset. And if it is a case of you just don't like doing what you're doing, maybe start by considering finding another job and working in a company or for a person or a team where it's just a better fit. And I think one of perhaps the best ways to learn about the mechanics of running a business is to go and join an early stage startup company. I don't know where Albert is in the world or what kind of opportunities or what kind of companies may be in that market. But if you join an early stage company, you may have to sort of take and accept a lower salary, but they're certainly still going to pay you. And there are so many things that need doing. And usually there is a massive shortage of capable people to do it. So if you are simply smart and you work hard, and you are able to show that you can do things consistently, a startup can be, I think, a great place to learn the ins and outs of what does it take to run and scale a business. I'm not sure sort of from the question, I, it's difficult to get a sense of Albert's, whether he's looking for a like a lifestyle outcome to build a, a small business that's going to give a, an otherwise like really strong cash flow and, and create a really good lifestyle, or if you want to go for the moon and build a billion-dollar company and end up with the likes of of that scale of of entrepreneurship. Those are two very different types of businesses to build. And I think depending on which way you want to go could lead you to join different kinds of teams where you could learn how to do that. But that would be my two cents. It does. There's another sentence in here that says, my goal is to have a scalable business which won't require me to be the face of the company and allow me to eventually hire people to perform some tasks I performed day one. I'm inferring that it is more lifestyle than, say, venture-backed growth company. That would be my interpretation of that with the goal of obviously building a team, though. So it isn't a one-show-only kind of business. Now, Manny, I know you left your job to become an mm-hmm. entrepreneur, didn't you? So you, you've been through this. What, what, how did you go through the process? Well, I had made up my mind that I was going to do this. So sink or swim, I'm going in. So that was 2015 when I left my job. And I just had a burning problem, which was book summaries at, at the time. And even today, they're 
not as fun. They're not as engaging. They're not as visual. So I said, I like to remember books by creating mind maps of those. So I just started doing it for my own sake. So every business I have, basically two businesses, three businesses, everything that I've done in business is to basically do it for myself. I have never created a single product that was for someone else. It was only for myself. I was only solving my own problems. Like every single product, every single course I've created was because I was solving my own problem. I was read and summarized the mental toughness books because I wanted to read those. I summarized the productivity books because I want to read those. I created two, three productivity courses because I actually was interested in them. And then I started Focus Blocks because it is for me more than anyone else. That's exactly what I need to stay focused and get work done. So to me, it was a journey of like finding what it is that I want to do that is a real problem to me and then going after it and figuring it out as I went. Of course, the problem for a lot of people might be that if you are in a job and you're now going to start a business, how do you do the financing and how do you take care of all the cash flow issues and things like that? That is a tough one. I had enough of savings to be able to tie through for the next couple of years while the business was still in the early phases to get through it. Not everyone has the same liberty. And if you don't have that liberty, I would say you start part-time in your garage in the mornings, in the evenings, spending a couple of hours a day every single day working on your side hustle until it gets some traction. And then you decide where you take it. But don't put off the idea of starting a business till one day you have that perfect idea and then everything will line up and you will have a business. That's not going to work like that. You start hustling today, right now, and you start spending hours every day, whatever time you have, your extra time on whatever crap idea you might think you have or whatever great idea you think you have, start hustling there. And over time, whether it's a month, two months, three months, consistently keep working towards it. And hopefully within a few months or a few years, you'll get there. So think of a startup as a marathon, not a sprint and mm. take action towards that and not try to sprint it out because that's just a dangerous recipe for burnout and failure in some ways. Yeah, good advice. Gideon, I'd really love your take on this idea of learning entrepreneurship, whether that is something you can learn. Because I, I get the feeling from the way Albert asked this question, it wasn't just about, can I start a business? It's how can I learn to be successful at business? So you've obviously been teaching and coaching and went through a phase of, I don't know if you called it learning entrepreneurship or not, but uh, any comments on that? Yeah, so I, I got qualified as an electronic engineer. So I did four-year study of that, hated it, and thought, I don't want to be an engineer. And then as a result of that, I did another degree, which was a master in engineering management. And the reason I did that was because it seemed to me to be more on the entrepreneurial side. It ended up actually being more on the management side of things. But nonetheless, there were some topics that they were like commercializing technology sort of topics, you know, which sort of had an entrepreneurial slant to it. And there were some entrepreneurial sort of slanted courses in there as well. But that was really nothing in comparison to actually jumping in, taking the plunge like many did as well and and just doing it, like learning while you're doing. And, you know, I would say it probably took me about two years to unlearn my employee mindset and to establish a more solid entrepreneurial mindset. It's a very different mindset and you know, there's no right or wrong with any of them. It's just, it's a different hat you got to wear and you got to get used to wearing it. One key difference, for example, was that when you're an employee, business comes to you, unless you're a salesperson, of course. But in, in general, if you're on the value creation side of it, business just comes to you. You don't have to worry about it. You know, the funding gets so looked after, the customers get looked after, 
whatever, you just do your job, right? And uh, you get paid. Whereas as an entrepreneur, especially at the beginning days, sales is a big <laughs> a big function of that. You got to figure out a way to get clients and customers and to pay the bills. And that's a very different mindset to sitting there as an employee in, in my situation anyway, and the business coming my way without having to worry about it. But I, I, I do think I, I definitely learned a lot faster were a lot, the lessons were a lot more real when I actually jumped in and actually just started doing it. Probably more important in terms of learning was mindset because it's tough being an entrepreneur. You know, there's uh, stuff being anything, I think, but it's, it's, tough you know, being as an alive, entrepreneur, right, there's <laughs> stuff being alive. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta eat food and sleep, all this sort Go of to stuff. The bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, as an entrepreneur, the thing is that your life is much more unpredictable as, say, an employee where you, you know, at least for a certain amount of time, if you've got a contract, you know what to expect. As an entrepreneur, you never really know what's going on, what's around the corner. You know, you could lose everything the next day for whatever reason. <laughs> and there's you know, so many different variables. So it's much more unpredictable. And for that, you need a good mindset. You need to be able to rebound when you fall. You need to be able to get up multiple times whenever you get knocked over. And and that's that's a hundred percent a mindset thing. So that was for me, you know, there are a lot of self-help and self-development sort of books and videos or whatever trainings that I that I did on that, which I think was really important mindset-wise. But I want to touch on something as well that, that does affect mindset too. And that is, many touched on it and, and Nick as well, but the importance of cash flow when you're starting out. So I was in the privileged position to, lucky position more, to have my wife working while I was starting up. We didn't have any money. Oh, I think we had 10,000 in saving or something. But, you know, that was really, we didn't want to spend that on the business. That would, you know, would have run out really quickly. So while my wife was working, I was figuring this entrepreneur thing out. And I couldn't have done it without that. It would have been extremely stressful to start a business without that cash flow coming in to just pay the bills. So the idea of Nick of working in an actual startup, so you, you can still pay the bills and learn about entrepreneurship at the same time. I think that's genius. Or if you have a beautiful, you know, amazing partner like myself where they basically pay the bills while you learn, that obviously is incredible too if you can make yeah, that work. Plan that um, one. <laughs> you can't really plan it. I was lucky. But otherwise, like Manny, use your own savings or if you can get investment, then you know, you've got the cash flow there. Otherwise, otherwise, it's just too stressful. It's just you, then you just worry about how you're going to put food on the table tomorrow and you don't think about – you know, how to grow the business properly. So, Yeah, uh, great advice, I think, from all three guys. Only thing I'm going to throw in is I've been recently more exposed to, I guess, startups that are going for, you know, investment capital and, and trying to uh, get that billion-dollar outcome. And I actually would lean a little bit on Nick's side for this now because of that, in the sense that you can join an early-stage startup watch how the founders do entrepreneurship and there's your learning of what it takes to basically build a business while getting a secure salary and if you're early enough getting shares which in some ways is like being a founder obviously you're not getting that high percentage but even if you're getting a few percentage points it can be a lot of money in, in a high growth startup eventually you know three or four years and i, I kind of match that with this idea that Certain personalities, even that idea will be horrible to them. For example, young Yarrow would not have been okay with that advice. He would have taken a job at an early stage startup and within six months been like, I can't stand being told what to do and I hate coming in nine to five and all of this sucks and I, I want to be in control of my time straight away. So I'll, I'll take a part-time job 
you know, make my bills working four hours a day or whatever it is just to survive and, you know, live with your parents. Maybe not an option for you right now, Albert. You either need savings, you need to live with your parents, you know, a wife or a husband is going to pay your way. <laughs> if not, you know, basically, you know, those are your options. So, yeah, I actually think if your personality matches up, Nick's advice is actually a great place to start. And then you can start your own business once you've done a good two or three or four years in a, an early stage startup and see what that's like. So, or you might just stay there and decide, you know what? Entrepreneurship is not for you. It's, it's very much a, a personality choice. I see Nick has his finger up. Nick, butt in, please. I want to do a follow-up question sort of as I think we've done a quick lap on this, but to ask you, what do you think is the most important skill to learn? Like Gideon just talked about mindset and that's something I think you need to be developing constantly. But when you are building a startup, you've got to wear every hat. You've got to be the marketer, the salesperson. You've got to work out what you're going to sell, who you're going to sell it to. You've got to work out how to keep track of the finances. You've got to keep an eye on, well, am I doing everything that's like legally buttoned up? You've got to be the CEO. You've got to be the support person. Like Out of all the hats, which one is most important at the start? You're directing that at me, Nick? Okay, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm actually going to agree with Gideon and, and probably Manny too. We all think mindset is sort of like the origin story of all the skill sets, you know, without the mindset, those skill sets don't get developed because you give up or you just don't see the path forward. So the funny thing is you tell someone that and it doesn't seem like the answer. You know, you think it's, oh, how do I get another lead or how do I get another product that sells better or, you know, just an idea. But really those things are part of the marathon, as Manny said, and you just need to keep adjusting along the way. But if you feel so depressed because your first thing failed or, you know, you're not getting any opt-ins to your email list or no investor wants to pay attention to you, whatever the negative things that will inevitably hit you and that means you give up, that's a mindset issue. You know, that's a problem that needs to be fixed with inside you first. So I wish that was advice more beginner entrepreneurs really took to heart. But unfortunately, a lot of people think it's just about finding that secret sauce or that, you know, formula that successful entrepreneurs know, like Gideon and Manny and myself, we know something other people don't. That's why we succeed. But that's that's really not the case, I don't think. Manny, please butt in. Yeah. So, I feel like one of the biggest challenges and one of the biggest things that we need to learn as entrepreneurs is, or not learn, but it actually just is part of the, it's right of the passage, which is a sense of commitment to the cause. So until you're committed, you will always find a way out. Until you're committed to that idea, that thing, or maybe it's just the idea that I will do business or I will die without it, right? Or until you're committed to making something work, there's always things you think you need to know or you don't have, or there's funding that's not coming or this idea, you know, without commitment, things just don't work. So the biggest challenge in entrepreneurship is whether you're committed or not. Are you committed to making this work? Because if you're committed to making it work, everything will come. But if you're not committed to making it work, every marketing skill, every sales skill, everything, mental toughness, productivity, like we, you can learn all the mindset, but like that commitment piece, without it, nothing really clicks. It just feels like a constant never-ending chore to get that business off the ground. But when you say, I will die with this and make this happen, or you know, metaphorically, you will die with it, you start to make it work. So I feel like commitment is the most important or most underrated. It's not even a skill, but it's the stepping stone to to play the big game of entrepreneurship. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's a character tribute. Okay. Well, unless anyone else wants to throw in any last yeah. words, I just want to say thanks to Albert, but um, Gideon, go for it. Yeah. I actually just want to echo what Manny is saying. That's so true. If I look back when I started, I think 
one of the key reasons why I kept on going was because I had my back against the wall. I literally burnt all my ships <laughs> when, because I, you know, I went from having a relatively cushy job in New Zealand and a good qualification to emigrating to a new country where I couldn't find a job. No one wanted to employ me. And essentially, I had no contacts in Australia to work. So I had to make my business work. I didn't have a choice. So metaphorically, burnt the ships, so to speak, which automatically made me committed. You know, that was <laughs> just an automatic outcome of that. So I didn't necessarily need to read any mindset books for that. So that's a really good point. The other thing I just want to quickly mention that directly answers uh, Nick's question, which is something that I wish I had learned earlier on. I'm a little bit in two minds about it, but I do still wish I learned it earlier on. And that is, I learned this from, well, both you, Yaro, and also, you know, more recently from Strategic Profits. What's his name? Rich Sheffern. Dan Rich Sullivan. Sheffern. No. Oh, Dan sorry, Sullivan. Strategic. Okay, sorry. Strategic coach. Strategic, strategic coach. coach. Sorry, yeah. Coach, Dan yeah. Sullivan. Dan Sullivan. So, he talks about first who, then what. Or no, sorry, who, who, not how. Sorry, he talks about that. Uh, that's Jim Collins talks about first who, not what. So, similar sort of thread there. Uh, you know, first, when you come across a problem, any problem, instead of you first going as an entrepreneur, uh, how do I solve this? You ask the question, who can solve this for me? So, on paper, that sounds really good. In practice, though, the trouble that I always have going back in time is like, back in time, if I go back to younger Gideon as beginner startup, if I had that approach, it would have been amazing. I think it would have been much further ahead. But then again, I'd go, well, who, how would I pay these people, you know, <laughs> if I didn't have a, a solid business? Like, now it's a lot easier now that we've got good cash flow to go when a problem comes up instead of me going how do I figure this out how do I do this myself I go who can do this for us and then we just hire them you know we just hire the right person much much faster progress than me trying to learn a new skill or trying to figure it out but yeah the issue I have is like right at the beginning when there's no when you don't have money coming in like how do you make that work other than doing a partnership or a equity share type of thing or some other kind of crazy thing that'll probably come bite you back later down the track. So, I don't know if you guys have any insights on that. Well, let's move on. I think we've given Albert too much to think about possibly here. But Albert, thank you so much for sending in a question. And anyone else listening in now on our, our second episode of this Mastermind call, if you do have a question, send an email. Any of my email addresses, yarrow at yarrow.blog will get to me. And uh, we're happy to answer on the, the live Mastermind podcast. So, and no question is too beginnerish or too advanced. Well, maybe too advanced, but we'll do our best to answer. Anyway, guys, so I didn't even cover my last six weeks. And I actually wanted to get your, your thoughts on one particular decision I had to make from your three different perspectives, which I'm sure will be very different. So I had uh, Nathan Berry on my podcast, the uh, founder of ConvertKit, which I think at least two of you, I'm not sure, Nick, if you'll be familiar with them, but it's an email marketing platform, similar to an Aweber or uh, MailChimp, something like that started uh, i think in 2012 anyway just had some rapid growth very much driven by the blogging space and they are well two things happened so i heard from another podcast that they're actually selling shares on the secondary market and what that means is basically they have a lot of early employees in the company who want to get liquidation of some of their equity and other investors will step in and purchase those shares at a valuation of what the company is currently valued at so the great What's thing about value that? yes, so this is the wonderful thing about ConvertKit and and Nathan Barry, super transparent about absolutely everything with their company. So, in fact, you can go to I think it's bearmetrics.convertkit.com. I don't know if you guys want to even just go bring it up right now. It's a dashboard showing you 
every single detail about the revenue that the company is doing. Last time I checked, it's about $28 million a year in run rate. Phenomenal growth. I remember first hearing about them when they were hitting their first million and then they got to 8 million, which was already massive and you know, just growing and growing and growing. Their valuation for the secondary raise is $200 million, which is about a 7x times their run rate. Damn, I What's got it right. You did? <laughs> you I put it in the chat right before you said it. Uh, you did it. You know, I didn't realize this thing's going on in the chat room now. Okay, <laughs> here we go. I'm going to prove this right. Now, okay, 200 million. Nice. Manny, you win a prize. Yeah, so basically, well, two things happened. I thought, hey, I want to get Nathan on the podcast. So I did. And then that obviously gave me an opportunity to talk to him about the secondary raise because I was like, I might want to throw a little bit of money in. Now, I should give context. I've basically run out of liquid investment capital. So I'm like, this is an either or decision. For example, I have a certain amount of money invested in some stocks. One in particular, I have some money in Airbnb. And it's kind of been doing not a lot. And I just made this thought process. Would I like to sell half my Airbnb shares and put it into something like ConvertKit instead? And I think that's a nice place to hold it because that's really where I, I was making a decision. And I want to throw that back at you three guys. I obviously don't have to directly answer it comparing Airbnb to ConvertKit. Obviously, that's a company floated on the stock market worth almost $100 billion versus a Series B maybe level startup that's valued at $200 million. But potential for growth in a startup is usually bigger than a company that big, except for a few of the really big superstars like the Facebooks and the Googles and so on. So I'm curious, would you guys ever do an investment? I'm talking about like $25,000. So, you know, US dollars is not necessarily your entire life savings. Well, maybe for some people it is. In that case, you should definitely not do it. <laughs> but, you know, if it's part of your investment strategy, I had, you know, I had about $200,000 in shares. And I'm like, I could take out 25 from that and instead put it in to ConvertKit. Does that make sense? So throwing that at you guys, what do you think? I mean, it's such a relative situation, right? ConvertKit is in the in the play there where it is entirely possible for it to become a billion dollar company, just like Kajabi, ClickFunnels and all of those. They're playing in the is same Kajabi? space. Yeah. Kajabi, a billion dollar company. Really? Yeah. What's their run rate? Yeah. Do you know it? I don't know, but it was recently, like, it was a big news deal. So, Kajabi is up quick. there. Thinkific, what is it? A couple of hundred million right now? Thinkific? Thinkific is $1 billion. You mean like valuation or? Yeah. Yeah, $1.2 billion, Thinkific. So, yeah, they're all playing in the same space, more or less in that creator market to help creators build a business or the, the online marketing space of build a knowledge business and stuff like that. So, I wouldn't be surprised if ConvertKit gets there too, even though... Thinkific has a lot of competition. ClickFunnels has a lot of competition. ConvertKit has a lot of competition. But there is something about the founder who has a very clear vision, which is what is very appealing about ConvertKit because I've had chat with Nathan Berry as well. and He's hungry. Yeah, and he's very convincing in like what he's trying to do. He was talking about how ClickFunnels was trying to acquire them at one time. This was like a year and a half ago and we're talking and he's like, or maybe two years ago. And the idea of an entrepreneur who has a clear vision is very appealing compared to companies where they're just running through different CEOs and <laughs> founders just trying to figure out a footing. So yeah, mm -hmm, there, it's mm -hmm. it's very relative, but ConvertKit is one of those businesses that I do believe in because I use it too. So Now you two guys, do you ever do, uh, Nick and Gideon, do you ever do this kind of investment? Or, or I know probably, Nick, you're pretty much throwing any investment into property. Is that accurate now <laughs> as we speak today? No, so I mean, like by just a function of working in startups over the years, I have invested in those companies. I've bought 
equity. I've bought shares as part of my employee compensation package. It starts as being issued with options, and then you get the option to actually well, buy a share. I mean, I've exercised lots of options over the years. This is a tricky one, and I'm like trying to pick it apart Nick, in my head. I just want to know: Have you exited any of those shares yet? Has that happened, or no? No. So, okay, so you- there is a, a bucket there where it's like just it's illiquid, and hopefully there'll be a, a liquidity event around it. Soon? You must have had a secondary op- opportunities, much like with ConvertKit's employees at some point, maybe. So this is an interesting topic, and it's something that I don't know enough about to go into really a lot of detail. But the secondary market, it's always possible, but typically any sale of shares is still going to be required to get board approval by a company, depending on the way that that company's incorporation documents are written. And the secondary market, there's plenty of people and plenty of firms out there that actively invest. So I guess when I think about this opportunity as you phrased it, I would first of all, I suppose, take ConvertKit and just put that aside and just say it's any startup. And the way that I would think about it would be, what is the proportion of my total investments that I feel comfortable having in a really high risk and illiquid investment? And maybe sort of given the growth that some areas of the market have seen recently, maybe the stock market's up. So it's like, all right, well, now I've got too much money sitting in the stock market and I feel uncomfortable about that level of risk. And I now want to distribute that elsewhere. So I'm going to now effectively rebalance my portfolio and put a bit more money into super high risk, illiquid early stage startups and reduce my asset allocation in somewhere else because that's my overall strategy. In terms of whether or not ConvertKit is a good investment. And again, I don't know what your situation is. I don't know anything about ConvertKit, but my two ideas on that would be that if you have a relationship with the founder and you want to sort of become a supporter because you want to reinforce that relationship with the founder, I think that's a really smart move because someone today who's doing $20 million a year and has a company that's worth $200 million, that's a, an incredible and phenomenal achievement. And if a founder can do that once, then that's the kind of person that might do this again and again and again throughout the course of their career. So if you have an opportunity to build a relationship with that person as an investor today, maybe this company goes, well, maybe it doesn't. But if they see that you're willing to bring money to the table, then there's a good chance that you'll have an opportunity to invest again in their next company and the company after that, and potentially at an earlier and earlier stage where then the outcome that you're going to get is going to be multiplied 10 times beyond what you might otherwise see here in terms of a revenue opportunity. And I guess the the final thought that I've got is that the people who do really well in investing in startups know something that most of the market doesn't. So I think either they have some insight into the company or the team or the space, or they just they know where that market trend is going, or they're just spreading their bets so thinly across so many different companies, which is the typical VC strategy, that if one wins and goes 100x or 1,000x, that's all they need. And the other 10 that don't win, or even 50 that don't win, you know what, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Yeah, spot on, Nick. You just triggered so many thoughts. Let's throw it to Gideon. I don't know if you have anything to add to this before I ramble on. No, I think it's, it's yeah, well said. I, I guess I'm, I'm more of a hedgehog, you know, I... I prefer being focused with my resources and at this stage of the game, it's focused on on the business that I'm building right now. So yeah, hedgehog versus uh, fox. Yeah. And Nick, you, you really summarize it, I think, really well. The, the mindset of, of angel investing and, and venture capital investing, that sort of winner mentality, but also relationships about getting into round two or second company, third company. Yeah. I mean, I haven't had an exit besides our mutual friend car advice with Alborz Fala in terms of, you know, an angel type investment in another company before. And that was a 10-year ride. 
the opportunity cost of that investment, I would have probably made potentially even more if I just left it in the stock market for those 10 years. That being said, there is an element of insider trading, not that it's insider trading. In fact, I just heard today one of the podcasts I listened to, the angel investor was saying that's what angel investing is. It's legal insider trading because you basically are inside the company, know the founder, you know how things are going. It's high risk, but you do get this insight into what a company is doing and how it's growing. So Nathan is amazing how transparent he is. Even in the podcast, he was talking about, and this, this got me a little more excited too, they're opening up in the near future like a Stripe type function for their user base. So they'll provide the transaction capability as well as the email newsletter capability. So they're just expanding the tool set. But of course, once you have a function like that, you're scraping you know a little percentage of every single transaction your user base does. And if it's integrated within ConvertKit, it also makes it much easier to switch on taking payments with them. So that's exciting and looking forward to seeing what happens with that. But yeah, let's move on, guys. I know we, we've probably got another 15 or so minutes before we roll up. I keep poking with property, Nick. <laughs> I really, uh, Nick and I had a few uh, chats, uh, messenger chats in between this call and the last call. Uh, and I think it's a great time to ask you this, Nick, because you just closed on a deal. And I know I can tell even just when I, I talk to you about this, this is, this is kind of like your hedgehog investment strategy, I feel, right now. This is where you're spending your research time, where you're trying to get better, you're learning and I just love to know, just close the deal. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that as much as you're comfortable sharing and, and what was the, the strategy behind that? Sure. So there's a market in the US, um, a city rather, Little Rock in Arkansas, that is a place that I've been sort of getting familiar with over the last few years. Uh, I've got a really good longtime friend who grew up there and sort of introduced me to that and also introduced me to, to property investment in the area. He's sort of a couple of years, I guess, ahead of me in this game. And I was down there not too long ago and looking for, at the time, what I thought would be single family homes, three bedroom, two bathroom, starter homes. And in the past, they've been a really good, easy, I suppose, first level investment because they're not too expensive. You can typically rent them for an amount that's going to pay all the bills and be cash flow positive. But things in the US have been going like kind of crazy the last six months and we looked at a, a lot of places and all the prices had skyrocketed beyond what I was expecting them to be. So we were getting a little bit sort of downhearted and I happened to see a listing come up for, it was three townhouses, three bedroom, one and a half bathroom townhouses. And it was funny because the listing came up and it didn't have any information on it. It just said three townhouses and there was a price next to it. it didn't even give a street address. It had these terrible photos and one of the photos <laughs> had a had like the actual physical like numbering that was nailed to the front of the house so i was able to to then work out where it was and it was like wow we have an opportunity before everyone else spends the 15 minutes to go through the photos in minute detail like i have uh, <laughs> to work out where this is and it was at a good price and it was rented what i think is is below market so there's an opportunity to bring the revenue up around it as well and it's like all right well let's try. We hadn't done anything with townhouses before and there was no homeowners association attached to it. So there was no like additional fees to be paid. And uh, yeah, we, we made an offer. The offer got accepted. We were in escrow for two and a half months, which was a month and a half longer than what we expected. And that all wrapped up last week. So now I've, I've got to work out how to put a tenant in one of these townhouses that is empty 
And I've just found out yesterday that I need to put a new roof on all three of them. So I'm now learning about how to get bids for a roof when I'm on the other side of the country and what it means when someone says, well, you should you do you want architectural shingles or do you want three tap shingles? And I'm like, mm, let me pull <laughs> up the Google and see, see which I want. You go, Manny. Manny had a question. No, I was just wondering what's the rent to price ratio, or if you want to just share like how much you bought it for and what how much is you going to be the rent total rent right now on a monthly basis? Cap rate. Well, cap would be a lot more. Cap yeah, is pretty nerdy, yeah. but the <laughs> the ballpark number that I I go in with is I'm looking for something that's going to be cash flow positive. So the amount of money that's left at the end of the month after the tenant has paid their rent and all the bills have been paid and some money set aside for repairs and maintenance, there's still some left over. And the rental amount I'm looking for at a baseline is that the monthly rental is in the ballpark of 1% of the purchase price. So if it's a something that costs $150,000, the, the monthly rent being in the vicinity of about $1,500 per month. So you're getting that? You're getting the 1%? Yep. Nice. Yeah, that's good. Nice. Okay. I'm still into property. No matter how badly it treats me, I, I keep going back. So I, I actually found a property manager since we last spoke, Nick, and, and he's been actually pretty solid. So I'm, I'm staying in Canada and Montreal for the time being, but who knows, that might change the next, the next problem that kicks up. Hey guys, let's wrap this up by doing what we always do in our masterminds. Let's really talk about what we're working on since you know we won't speak now for the next episode for a month, month and a half, whatever it might end up being. Uh, maybe we'll do it more frequently if we've got more to share. But I'd love to know what your your focus is on for the next month or even the you know, second half of the year, really. And maybe we'll start with Nick because Nick is a... Uh, He's got a wife looking for him right now and he might need to leave us. So, <laughs> Nick. <laughs> I mean, other than learning what is involved in, in replacing a roof and, and trying to get my head around that, I'm really hopeful that for the next four weeks, my leg comes back to full working order and I, I get out and run a good marathon at the end of the month. And I guess the other big piece is you just keep putting one foot in front of the other in terms of both my day job and, and really delivering well there. The back half of the year is always the more challenging half because people sort of start getting a little bit tired. They want to take a lot of holidays in September and in August. You suddenly start looking and, well, are we going to hit our sales targets or are we going to be like grinding out really hard in the last quarter? And beyond that, yeah, just live life. <laughs> Ooh, so philosophical. <laughs> Gideon, what, what are you, what's, I know you're driven for Splashio, Mr. Hedgehog. So what's the next second half of the year look like for you? Well, we do them in quarters, so in each quarter we we review what we do. So we don't, you know, we don't go that far ahead. I mean, we've got the bigger vision thing, but I mean, that doesn't necessarily affect our quarter to quarter decisions. So yeah, for me, it's it's really this quarter is about growth again, and that's why we're hiring, you know, building the, the growth team as opposed to me trying to do it all, and hopefully get to a point where I can still create and there's the growth function being taken care of. I'm still overseeing the growth function, but I'm not doing it. Because that just draws out my energy, you know. So yeah, that's that's it for us for for quarter three. You know, it's gro- sort of a growth, wearing the growth hat very much. So yeah, for me this quarter, just like Gary and I also operate in quarters, must be something an engineering thing. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just focused on getting focus blocks up to a thousand members, like figuring out ways to hack that growth. Which means for me, picking the one channel where we will grow the fastest, which is through advertising more than anything else, and really cracking that code. Because I feel like we've done somewhat, where like customer acquisition cost is still pretty high to the point where I'm not happy with it. So figuring out that part over the next couple of months so that we can 
scale this campaign, scale the overall acquisition campaign, mostly through Facebook ads. So figuring out all of those different pieces of the puzzle to scale the business. How's the campaign going, Manny? Like, I know you've been really in the thick of it with paid ads and you, you, you saw that. I mean, you, just for the listeners, before Manny kind of pivoted this focus to focus blocks, <laughs> you were also diving deep into paid advertising to promote essentially your courses mm-hmm. and trying to get that cash flow positive. And that obviously allowed you to take that focus and now promote focus blocks instead with your your advertising budget. So is it working? Are you, are you losing money, making money? How's the hunting for, for eyeballs going? Right. So we're somewhere around $100, $100 customer acquisition cost right now, which isn't really that bad, but then it's still high enough for me to not want to push the button on spending like 10 grand a day, right? Because it, it's still pretty expensive to acquire customers at $100, I feel. So I'm trying to figure out what can we do to lower the cost of acquisition there or increase the average order value and lifetime value on the back end to kind of allow for that higher customer acquisition cost. So just like what Gideon and you were talking about earlier, both those hacks, um, first of all, like giving it away for free and literally acquiring non-credit card customers, we probably acquire them at much cheaper. We'll also churn them out a lot because they will not pay in the long term. But that experiment, I believe, like as we do it for the next maybe two or three weeks, I should get some data. Maybe that is, it's like you're you're just trying to crack the code where that one thing really makes sense. Like the offer meets the marketplace at just the perfect sweet spot. And it is quite the struggle. It's quite the challenge to get beyond your user base, your super fan base, when you go into the open market to get them to believe in you and to get them to buy and use the product. So, Yeah, it's funny talking to you about this, Manny, because I know, Gideon, you've basically been trying to do the same thing, really, like, you know, mm-hmm. paid acquisition to grow Splashio. But, and despite your engineering background, you haven't wanted to be the guy in there with your ads all day long, trying to get the campaigns running as your main job, where Manny, I feel like you have been pretty motivated to do that. So... It's a problem we all still need to solve though, right? And, and is that actually getting why, like you said, right at the start of this call, you, you, you're bringing on some growth people. Are they taking on paid acquisition as well? Yeah, that'll be our first channel to focus on for them. So I've got some stuff that I've set up myself, but I just feel like it hasn't, I'm not an expert at it. I, don't, I, I know enough about it to be dangerous, but I don't know enough to, to really do a proper job at it. And I've just felt that, you know, spending so much time on it myself is actually making the rest of the business suffer. And it's it's not, you can't just scale. Your business is not just about scaling. You need to, well, it, at least the way I view it, it's, it it's, it's innovation and marketing coming together that creates a great business. That's my view. So they, they've got to fire at some point when you get into the business, when your technology is mature enough and you're building your marketing team, I think they've got to both fire on full cylinders at the same time. And for that, you need the people to drive it. So I think you need a specialist in each of those areas to drive it. And I can't be a hedgehog if I'm, if I'm trying to do both those things. So, yeah. Gideon, have you cracked, like have you acquired customers on paid traffic yet at a certain cost or it's still to be figured out? Yeah, no, we have. So, so we've been doing paid for quite a while now. It's just I haven't been feeling comfortable to scale that to myself because similar to you, I think our acquisition cost is still too high. I think it's actually dropped a lot now with our new funnel. So so it's good timing for us to to start experimenting a lot bigger now to scale. 
Yeah, makes sense, guys. So I'll just throw in my two cents from my focus as well. I'm such not a hedgehog right now, Gideon, you'd be very disappointed with me. Um, <laughs> doing too many things now. You know, it is interesting with Inbox Done, obviously my, my main company right now. Claire has been building the team so much that she's trying to take herself out of the kind of CEO, COO function. So for example, she used to do all the client calls, which is just like a check-in, see how the client's going with the service, often a chance to either fix a problem or offer an upgrade to what we already do. She's handed that, that over to one of our team members, Armand. Meanwhile, I've been Basically, I'm becoming a, a, a podcast person. Like all I'm doing for marketing is going on podcasts. We, we hired an agency called Podcast Connections. I spent a good amount of time in June researching podcast agencies. Uh, I had about six or seven discovery calls and there's not a lot of differences between them. We ended up hiring that one. And I'm going on about seven to eight shows a month at the moment. How much are you um, paying for that? Seven fifty a month US. Um, so hundred dollars per show, more or less. Yeah, more or less. They have an interesting system at Podcast Connections. You should shout out to Raymond here. It's just for those who might be curious. Podcastconnection.org. Podcastconnection.org. Yeah. So hmm. they have a payment, like a pricing model, where they put a value to each podcast. Like they basically give you a certain number of credits for your monthly fee, and then a show that has say. 2,000 downloads per month will only cost you, say, 10 credits, I'm guessing here, where a show that has 10,000 downloads per month will cost you 50 credits. And they have tiers. They call them like from 1 to 10. And, you know, if you want to get on nothing but high-tier shows, you're going to spend your credits, you know, my 750 of, of US fee would go for two high-tier shows a month. But when we're getting a mix now, like I'm going on some shows that have less traffic, more traffic. And to be honest, you know, they're metrics for assessing traffic are never going to be 100% perfect either. So we don't really know how many downloads or how prolific a show might be. Plus, ultimately, each show will have a different type of audience. So a low traffic show with a highly targeted audience, even if it brings in one customer, it's massive ROI. You know, one customer is actually doubling and that's in the first month. Well, you know, kind of break even, I guess, if we factor in all the costs per month. So month two, we're already making profit if they bring in just one customer a month. But we're not only doing it for customer acquisition, we're also doing it for SEO benefit because that's a big part of our sort of long-term 12 to 24 month strategy is to start ranking better for some of our key search phrases because we get most of our current new acquisition from organic primarily because of my blog and some blog posts on the Inbox Done blog as well. So yeah, I'm going on podcasts for the next, I don't know, six months nonstop, basically. Meanwhile, the team is producing some content and we're starting a little bit of a LinkedIn outreach program as well to try and get more customers there. But it's funny, as I was thinking about all this, I and this is why I'm saying I'm not a hedgehog, the job I do for Inbox Done, it's not full-time for sure. It's far from it. And the angel investing, doing this podcast, property investing, each of those things in turn tends to suck a day out of my life, depending on what's demanding time. But as both of you guys know, I have a connection to Ukraine and I just really wanted to potentially do something with the resource I have there in the sense of the people I know. And I've been had this idea in the back of my head and I'm like, you know, I could really build an inbox done for Ukrainian development access. And having been a startup founder looking for a programmer, a developer, an engineer in the past, and knowing how hard that was, 
the potential to reach Ukrainian development, you know, expertise, talent at a potentially lower cost. But even just the fact that I have access to that audience to relationships there, I could basically build another inbox done company with my partnership with Andre, who's a Ukrainian friend. So I've been haven't started this yet, but we've been in talks like, should we consider starting a basically an inbox done for programmers so we can find, you know, mm. programmers for startup companies. I am excited about the idea because I already know the business model, but it's also a higher demand, higher cost service. So I do feel like if we can actually have the supply side, which is the harder part, the demand will be much stronger than, you know, inbox done is great, but it's not like, not everyone is just hunting for email managers the way they are hunting for developers. All right, guys. See you later. Thanks, Manny. Thank you. Bye-bye, guys. Thank you for listening all the way through to the end of today's Mastermind Group Podcast number two with my three friends. I hope you enjoyed that. As you can no doubt tell, we certainly have uh, varying opinions and thoughts, yet a lot of similarities. And we especially appreciate the question from Albert today. So uh, this is an invitation for you to send a question in as well. We'd love to devote part of every episode to answering at least one question. And right now, you know, we're not getting a lot. This is a brand new show. So it's an opportunity to get all four of our perspectives on anything you're working on regarding business, startups, investing, whether you're trying to generate some cash flow, whether you're thinking about how to invest your money if you already have something saved up or any aspect of growing your business, we can help. And, and as you already heard today, different perspectives from all four of us. So we certainly can offer you a varying insight in terms of what we all consider the best way to do something or, you know, give your advice, basically. Of course, we're not experts at everything. We're not offering investment advice, uh, as the legal disclaimer has to go out there. But we'd love to offer help and feedback. So please send in a question, email it to me, yarrow, Y-A-R-O, at yarrow, Y-A-R-O, dot blog, B-L-O-G. That will get straight to me. Tell me it's a question for the show. We will answer it on the very next episode. And yeah, would love to help you. And uh, although Albert did not do this, you are certainly welcome to mention your website, an opportunity for you to get in front of my audience as well. So when you ask a question, say you're from your domain name, your website, your business, and we'll give that a shout out as well on the show. Okay, so as I said before, this is a sub show on my Vested Capital podcast. So when you do subscribe, which I know you're going to do if you haven't done so already, hit the plus button or the follow button or the subscribe button on your podcast app so you get this show every single time we release it, including this, the Mastermind show we do roughly once a month. We're going to do it. You always get all of those episodes plus all the interviews I do on the regular Vested Capital show with startup founders, with people investing in property and stocks and crypto. Me and my team are working hard to get new guests all the time, and I, and I love doing this show. So you're going to get a continuous stream of episodes going forward. If this is a topic you care about, if you enjoy the style of this show, please share it. Please subscribe. And especially if you think there's something specific in an episode, something someone says that really resonated with you or you think would resonate with someone important to you and help them get past something or open their eyes to something – please share it with them. The more people we can reach with this show, the better it is for everyone. We can have more guests, uh, we can grow, and I'd be very grateful. Okay, that's it from me. My name is Yarrow, and I will speak to you on the very next episode.